Open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We'll kind of start there. In Romans chapter 1, by way of introduction. Let's pray and call upon the name of the Lord for blessing right now. Father, you know us. You know us better than what we know of ourselves. Down to the very number of hairs upon our head are numbered and known to you. You know the, the deepest recesses of our hearts. You know our motives, Lord. We, we, we stand open and, and bare before you. Your, your eyes are holy. They pierce down even this day into our souls. Lord, we just ask you to be pitiful, uh, to be, show pity and mercy upon us. You know our weaknesses. You know the sins that we are prone to. You know more than any of us in here, our great need of grace, even today, even after bending the knee to Jesus. Lord, rend the heavens. Come down. Attend your word. We desperately need ears to hear eyes to see your glory hearts that are ready and willing to take up our cross to deny ourselves to follow you Lord that's impossible without your aid Help us, Lord. And not even so much because we even need it, but because, Lord, we, we carry your name. We bear the name of Christian and the, the mark of your spirit upon us, Lord, for your glory do this, please, so that the world may see how we love you and how we love one another. And be compelled to ask for the hope that we have, the reason for it. Lord, I could ask more, but suffice it to say, even today, make yourself known here in this place so that we may go away rejoicing. We ask this all in the name of our powerful and merciful Savior, Jesus. Amen. The display of evil is running rampant in our country today. It's always been there in a way, but it's more in the past been behind curtains, hidden, not flaunted. I'm afraid that we can get into all these different topics from gender issues that are coming up. 
And at the end of the day, even with that, I, my, my prayer is that even as a church, we just don't get tired of the battle. That we don't get tired from, from standing up. And yet, at the same time, that we would have compassion on those who are confused upon the issue. It used to be a rarity that we would have school shootings. No more in today's world. And all of that kind of just pushes away things that have been going on now for centuries. Killing of millions of babies that are unborn. The most defenseless taking their lives. In a sense, the honoring of the God of Molech and the God of oneself and the God of one's ease over life. We can look at even our own sins and look at the sins of bitterness and covetousness and worldliness. About lack of gospel compassion on those sins that we view as extremely heinous. Evil is having its way. And even right now, I'm sure there's things that are running through your mind that are going on, the atrocities that are taking place. Truly, it's a day where every man does what is right in his own eyes. There's no fear of God. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 16. Here's the remedy. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is the gospel needed? Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So God is judging them. For what they knew true to be about God, they suppressed. Even though God made himself clearly seen, his invisible attributes through creation, mankind exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for idols of their own making. Verse 24, so therefore God judged them. He gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. They dishonored their bodies They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped the creator rather than the creator. Verse 26, God gave them over again, and this time to degrading passions and women exchanging what is the natural function for that is what is unnatural. The same way men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their lustful desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, now for the third time God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed, evil, full of envy, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, 
disobedient to their parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and though, although they knew the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only did they do the same, they also gave approval to others who practiced them. Nothing more could summarize the world that we live in than basically the abandonment of us by God. That's what God has done to this nation. We started off on good feet, biblical principles, and we chased after sin and chased after sin and chased after sin, generation after generation, and even God sending revival at times only had a minimal effect. Finally, God just says, if you want your sin, have it. So what hope is there? Not the message you probably wanted to hear on a Sunday morning. Not the one I so much wanted to even bring. What hope is there for a sinful people to, to reach up to God's holy standard? And God's standard is absolute holy perfection. Matthew 5, 48, Therefore you are to be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so that's the question we will ask today. What hope is there? We'll let the cat out of the bag. There's great hope. There is great hope. To answer this, I think it's best to find a correlation in Scripture a people that are in a similar situation as us. A people who knew the truth and yet abandoned the truth, like our nation has. Another way to put it, is there ever been a nation that knew the God of all creation and yet apostatized like our own has? We will find this in the book of Ezekiel. So I invite you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. All of this will make uh, the background clear for us as we move through Ezekiel and get to the verses I want to really gaze upon and focus upon this morning. Ezekiel chapter 1. Off the bat, we're introduced to this man, Ezekiel. He's 30 years old. He's uh, uh, of the priestly line. He was taken to Babylon, uh, Babylon in 597 B.C. Along with Judah's uh, other king, he was under the king Jehoiachin, and this was done by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came in and invaded the people of Judah and installed Zedekiah as a vassal king over Judah. While Nebuchadnezzar, the leader and king of the Babylonians, would, would have the ultimate say, the ultimate rule, Zedekiah was there to kind of manage this nation of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar could have been 
more ruthless. In fact, he was actually pretty merciful here. And as time goes on, sometimes we forget the mercies of God. This happened to Zedekiah. What's interesting to know about Zedekiah, ultimately, he's Judah's last king. Zedekiah would soon rebel. He would rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. He'd start making alliances with Egypt. He would start to to politically maneuver himself where he could then overthrow Babylon. That was his hope. And so a lot of people that were in Jerusalem thought that they had God's blessing upon their lives, that they were doing what's right, that God loved them in such a profound way that their other brothers and sisters of Israel were taken off in the captivity, but they were the faithful ones. They were the ones that got to stay. They thought God loved them so deeply, and they couldn't be any more wrong. God's blessing was not upon them. And so in these desperate times, here's Ezekiel in Babylon by the river. He has a vision. Many people have taken this and thinking that, especially in the 60s, that Ezekiel might have been on LSD or something. It is pretty trippy. But he has a vision of the glory of God. Well, all seemed so wrong for the people of Israel that were in captivity. And everything seemed so right for the Israelites that remained in Jerusalem. God saw things completely differently and he was going to reveal it to Ezekiel. And he wants to, by way of his living word, reveal it to us today. And so he has this vision. These angels around a throne room of God with God sitting upon the throne. And there's this mechanical-like contraption on the throne. Wills within wills. And the idea is that these wills could turn any which way that they were They could move in any direction upon all of creation. And there was thunder and lightning going on. And great glory, great splendor. It really speaks of the the swiftness of which God was going to react in judgment. The people of Jerusalem were saying, peace, peace. There was no peace. They were self-deceived. Judgment was coming. God was giving them, out of his mercy, time to repent. Ezekiel sees this. 
And he says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard this voice speaking. He's overwhelmed. He falls down as like a man dead. His eyes just probably pinhole size now after seeing the bright splendor of the glory of the Lord. In chapters 2 and 3, God calls Ezekiel to be his prophet, to warn Judah of the judgment that was to come, to warn even the people of Judah that were in captivity in Babylon because there were false prophets going around even there. You think they would have got it. God has removed you from the land. The promises that he swore to to. Abraham, that you guys had enjoyed. I'm taking that away from you for a while. You're in time out. But they were stiff-necked people. They had prophets going around saying, oh, this will end soon, this will end soon. We'll be going back to the promised land. God is happy with us. It's almost over. Just bear up a little bit while further. And so you have this weird prophet with a weird vision. And he is a weird prophet. Very weird. Chapter 3. I mean, look at this. After saying, you're my prophet, you're going to be my watchman, all I want from you, Ezekiel, is that when I tell you something, that you be that watchman, that you would warn the people of Israel. And how God would do this should blow our minds. Chapter 3, verse 26. Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be mute. Cannot be a man who rebukes them, for they are a rebellious house. When I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you will say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh. He who hears, let him hear. And he that refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. So the idea is this. God would say something and take away Ezekiel's ability to speak. Prophetically, he would then have to act out the judgment. And then at the appropriate time, God would open his mouth and he would speak the message. He's like the acting prophet. I don't know if he got an Academy Award for it, but... It must have been a unique thing to go over there and to actually stop by Ezekiel's house to see him acting this out. It's kind of like, let's go to the prophet and see what the weird thing he's doing today. Yet at the end, God did vindicate him, even though I believe many believed him to be crazy. Maybe the people were so obstinate in heart and intent on doing their own evil way that God had to go and do something spectacular, 
indifferent to actually break into their sinful mind. So chapter 4, what does he first do? He uses a brick and an iron plate as illustrations of Jerusalem's future siege. He's acting it out almost in a way with models. It's like a kid playing in the dirt army with little army soldiers. Also in chapter 4 from verses 4 to 8, then he starts doing this. He lays on his left side for 390 days and then on his right side for 40 days. In some ways signifying the guilt and then the punishment of Israel and Judah. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, he starts to eat and prepare food in an unclean manner. In fact, God at first says, I want you to cook this food over human dung as the fuel. And God graciously relents and says, okay, it can be animal dung. It was to show the complete uncleanliness of soul that is striking down at the core of this people. Chapter 5, he shaves his head and his beard, those things that would bring a man culturally at that time honor, and so he is now without honor. And then he uses this hair and he uses it as a different as a sign of the different ways that Judah, Judah would be punished. Some he threw into the fire. Some he put down, a third of it he put down and he struck it with the sword. A third was scattered into the wind and it kind of shows the, the ways that Judah, some would be uh, not make it through the fire and the siege of Jerusalem. Some would be killed by the sword as, as Nebuchadnezzar's army now filled with absolute wrath that this people would rebel against them, would come in here and just wipe them out. The ones that fled would be pursued and, and cut down. No prisoners. A very small amount he puts on him. Ezekiel puts a small amount of this hair on him to represent the small remnant that would remain. Oh, really? Come on, God. Is this this bad? A siege that would last some 18 months. People starving to death that they would come to the point where mothers would have to eat their children to survive? Really, is this sin this bad? It is. All sin is. All. see it that way? Do we see the times when we get impatient, impatient with our children or our spouse or our boss? Is that horrendous of a sin? 
from chapter 6 to 9, God shows how horrendous the sin is. Ezekiel has shown the defilement of Jerusalem. It's highlighted by this vision of him breaking into the temple. He's digging into it. And on the walls of the temple are all these drawings of idols, these different gods. And the priests of Israel, those who were supposed to be the religious leaders, the ones that were called to be the shepherds, the under-shepherds of God, leading the people towards righteousness, were bowing down to this idols. Even making the sun and the moon and they were worshiping everything. In fact, according to what it says in Ezekiel chapter 20, the rebellion was so bad in verses 26 and 31 that they practiced child sacrifice. In fact, if you do any study of the word Gehenna, which is translated as hell, There was this valley, this area outside of Jerusalem where people used to go and take their dung and trash and throw it in there. So you'd have fires that are continually burning. It was also the place where they would go and with these continually burning fires, parents thinking that they were doing the right thing Thing would throw their children into the fire. You kind of get some of that picture that Jesus is even talking about where the worm does not die because there's all this rotting refuse and stuff is on fire. The fire is never quenched. It just goes on forever and ever. And he says, that is like hell, but hell is just much worse. The worm does not die. The fire is never quenched. That's what's going on in Ezekiel's day. In fact, chapter 20 makes the, the reference that this had always been Israel. Even from the time that they were taken out of the land of Egypt, they had continually worshipped other gods. In fact, only King Hezekiah and I believe King Josiah were the only two kings out of all of Israel that actually made it a point to put away the high places and altars where people would actually worship other gods. All the other kings that were considered even good, none of them even touched those areas. And so this idea of this is a horrendous sin. They had exchanged the God who had redeemed them and saved them and made them a special, unique people. And now they're just like everyone else, practicing the same sins, worshiping other gods. They went on with their lives and then just added Yahweh to it. He was just an add-on. He was not the purpose of their lives, the center, the core of who they are, their, their motivation, their, the reason for existence, the reason and, and direction of their praise. Notice the similarities. 
Israel was a nation that knew God and was built on his laws and yet chose to rebel against him. As is this nation. Israel was blessed and had a place of prominence, at least in David and Solomon's day. And yet rampant sin decayed it from the inside. As has happened to this nation. God promised to judge Israel because of their sin. And he will. And has. Just from reading Romans chapter 1, can we argue that God isn't judging this nation by giving us over to some of these sins that we see just rampant? And yet there's even something that's more scary. And the scary part is the difference. Israel was a nation that was given these covenants, the Abrahamic and the priestly covenant of Numbers 25 and the Davidic covenant. And there were, there were promises of future fulfillments. God made promises that he would always keep that would always be there as soon as Israel would turn from their sin and trust in him. God has made no promises to this country, no covenant, as a nation as a whole. Only to individuals. Only to individuals. So with all this in mind, what did God do? Turn to chapter 10. This is terrifying. First thing he did, it's a two-step process. First step, and this is the fatal step. God in his glory abandoned the temple in Jerusalem. Chapter 10, verse 4. Then the glory of Yahweh went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. The temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of Yahweh. The glory came from behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies, of the Ark of the Covenant. We're on the mercy seat. These cherub were there. And he comes off of that place from the holiest place and goes to the threshold of the temple. He's slowly leaving. Oh, if only the priests there would have stopped their focus on these false gods and seeing the glory depart. Look verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim departed, and they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight, and the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of Yahweh's house. And the glory of Israel hovered over them. From the threshold of the temple, the door of the temple, they came now to the outer court wall on the eastern side 
a slow departure. As if Yahweh is being infinitely patient and saying, if you would just look to me and repent. But they did. Chapter 11, verse 23. The glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. From the eastern gate of the temple, the glory of God now goes over the Mount of Olives. And now that the temple is no longer God's special dwelling place, it's ripe for the pluckings. It is ripe for the harvesters of Nebuchadnezzar. And sometimes I don't think we understand and consider what a drastic and and deadly and, and just traumatic event this should have been. Oh, how Ezekiel must have wept. Right. It was the glory of God that led the Israelites out of Egypt as, a, as a, a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. It was the glory of God as seen at Mount Sinai when God made a covenant with Israel, the Mosaic covenant, and gave him the law. The, fire was, the mount was filled with fire and the glory of God. No one dared to go up except if called by God on that mountain. The glory of God filled the tabernacle when it was completed at its construction so the priest could not even go in there and minister as we see that in exodus 40 verses 34 and 35 and then later on on that same place in that same temple after solomon built it the glory of god filled the place it was god's amen It was God's declaration, this is my house. And now God is just doing this. See ya. Because his glory abandoned the temple, it's just another building. So Ezekiel 24, God gives two signs, one of a boiling water pot, This one had to be traumatic. God killed Ezekiel's wife. Two signs of destruction, two signs of death. This was to symbolize Jerusalem's bloody capture and slaughter. Really quickly. Psalm 137. Let me read this. Just listen to it, please. Think of yourself. Here's a Jewish person sitting in captivity in Babylon. Here's their world. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Verse 3, for there our captors demanded of us a song. And our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing 
Yahweh's song in a foreign land. I forget you, O Jerusalem. May my right hand forget her skill. May the, my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Look at verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, as now the psalmist turns to his captors, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes one of your infants against the rock. This is what happened. No mercy. Even the young infants have their brains bashed out against rocks. What are they to do? Turn to Ezekiel 37. Yet in despite of all this, despite all the wickedness, despite even the wickedness that even the Babylonians gave to this Jewish people, what would God do? Why and how could Yahweh ever forgive such a people? And we have this vision of the valley of the dry bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel writes, and he brought me by the Spirit of the Lord and sat me down in the middle of the valley that was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them, and behold, there were very, very many, and lo, they were very, very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. Say to him, O oh dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Lord Yahweh to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. And so he does as God commands. And he hears this noise. And all of a sudden the bones come together and even sinewed some skin come on them. But they're just dead, lifeless bodies. And then he says to me, verse 9, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, O son of man, that the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe life into these slain that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded to me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Later on in verses 11 through 14, he explains this vision. This is Israel, as good as dead, scattered, being brought back by God, by his great mercy. The question is how? And by this we will learn. And by this, this is what we should pray for. And by this, this is what we should be about. And by this, this is what we should really praise God for. And to understand how, we have to look what precedes it and what follows this from chapter 37. All right, so what we're going to look at is four steps that God employs to be reconciled 
uh, to bring reconciliation to a disobedient Israel. Up to this point, that was all introduction. I have 10 minutes to preach a sermon now. So I'm going to make it very quick and very easy points. How's that for y'all? <laughs> Four steps that God employs to bring reconciliation to a disobedient people. Again, this is what we need to be about. This is what we need to pray for, for individuals in this country. This is what you guys as a church need to be about. First step. God brings reconciliation to Israel to magnify his glory. We'll start there. It is all about the glory of God. His glory departed, and now he's going to regain this people all for his glory. God is always about his glory. God is jealous over his glory. Yahweh was brought glory by judging them for a sin, and he's going to be even brought more glory by restoring them. Let's see this in chapter 36, right? In verses 22 and 24. Therefore, Ezekiel is commanded, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, it is not because of you that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations where you went. I will vindicate my holiness and my great name, which has been profaned, which has been profaned in their midst. Why? That the nations will know that I am Yahweh declares the Lord God. I will prove myself holy among you in their sight, and I will take you from the nations, gather you all back, and bring you into your own land. God would receive glory by showing them grace and forgiving their sin. God would receive glory by, by showing his faithfulness, by keeping the Abrahamic covenant because part of what God promised to Abraham is you will be the head of a nation and this nation I am going to give a land and nothing can stop that from happening. And so God is going to be faithful. God's going to bring them back into the land. God will ultimately one day fulfill all of the Abrahamic covenant. Also shows his goodness, right? It had been prophesied that the Messiah needed to be from the house of Judah and born in Bethlehem. So therefore, this one who is in the line of David, from the house of David, would need to come to back to their own land and be born in that place. They had to come back. God's glory is the supreme motivator for everything. In fact, it's the supreme purpose of our redemption. Ephesians 1.12 We who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In fact, God's glory is so high. He even says He has set it above the heavens. 
in Psalm 8, verse 1. My question is, are we motivated by God's glory? Are we motivated in everything that we act and think and do to, to bring glory to God? We're commanded to, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory to God. God's glory should direct our prayers according to Psalm 79, verse 9. God's glory is the, the, to be what's on our lips as we declare it to others according to Psalm 96, verse 3. We're to even always fill our mind and meditate on God's glory according to Psalm 145, verse 5. It's all about God's glory. But time is wasting away. Let's get on to the second point. Second step that God is going to use. First of all, he's going to be using his glory. He's going to be showcasing himself, and that's going to be the means by him bringing them back, the Israelites back. God's going to bring reconciliation, point two, to Israel through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Through the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. There's the big picture stated. How are you going to do that, Yahweh? Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Therefore, I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes to be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I'll save you from all your uncleanliness. If God just brought Israel back to the land and then changed their hearts from the inside, they would soon just revert back to their same practices. And so what God promises is this amazing act of the Holy Spirit that has two major parts, right? The cleansing of sin and the giving of a new heart through the Holy Spirit, which now will indwell them. The New Testament speaks of this. You guys are going through John. That is the whole point that God... Jesus makes to Nicodemus where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, unless one has a new heart, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And Peter even says, you have been born again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. This cleansing of sin, this, this one who would actually literally connect us to Christ. And, and you guys will get into this when you come to John chapters 14, 15, and 16. Jesus says, I'm going away, and it's for your good that I go. Why? So that I could send you the Holy Spirit to be with you forever. And what will the Spirit do? He'll, he'll convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. He, he will bring to remembrance all those things that I've said to you. He will, in fact, and a lot of times we don't make this connection, cause you to abide in me, Christ says. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Smack right dab in the middle of this, this great 
sermon about the Holy Spirit, we have this one is we can only cling to Christ with new life through the active ministry of God living in and through us. It's not enough just to save us. He must actually change us. And that is only through His Spirit giving us a new heart so that we could be overcomers of this world. Third thing he says, he brings reconciliation to Israel by and through the Messiah. We need a Savior. We find this in chapter 37, verse 24. One of the titles of the Messiah would be the son of David. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David will be king over them. Future tense. This one who is David will be king over them. They will have just one shepherd, and they will all walk in my ordinances. They will keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land which I gave to Jacob, my servant, which your fathers lived. And they will live in it, and they and their sons and their sons and sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Here's this one who would come and reign over them forever. Here's the one who would be the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords. Here's the one who had to come. It was foretold that he would have to come and the Messiah would have two major purposes. First, he came in his first advent as a sacrifice for sins. This was surely seen in the Old Testament. Only reading through Isaiah 53 makes this abundantly cleared. And therefore, it was necessary that Christ would come for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Just falling short of God's standard of glory is sin. And the wages of sin is death. But Christ came and became a man and took our place, fully God and fully man, so that the wrath of God could be poured out upon him. That God's holy hatred of sin that we see in a tiny way in the book of Ezekiel could be poured out upon Christ as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins so that God's wrath would be appeased. This is what was read even this morning. This is the cup of his wrath that, that caused Christ to stumble in Gethsemane. Oh, my soul is sorrowful even unto death, he proclaims. Why, the cup that he would have to bear is the cup of God's wrath. But that is what secured our justification. And so now God commands all people everywhere to repent of their sins, to believe and trust only in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we, through faith, might become the righteousness of God in him. But God is coming again. The Messiah is coming again. The second aspect of the Messiah, he's the conquering king. He will have his own. He will come back for his bride. And one day Israel will recognize their Messiah according to Zechariah chapters 12 through 13. They will look upon him whom they have pierced and cry out with great anguish. And it says, on that day a great fountain will be opened for the house of Israel, house of Judah, according to Zechariah 13.1. He will be the one. Of, of Daniel chapter 7, coming in the clouds of glory in heaven with him. 
He will rule the nations with a rod of iron and justice will be served. And here's the unique thing. The, the God who came away from the temple and went to the threshold and from the threshold to the gate and the gate to the Mount of Olives. That same God, the one who is full of glory, will one day come and he will return and his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. And the glory will come back. And therefore, even in the new heavens and new earth, in the new city of Jerusalem, There'll be no need for a temple. There'll be even no need for a sun because the glory of God will be the light to the nations. The last thing, last step, and the best of all, God brings reconciliation through a new covenant. Verses 26 through 28 of Ezekiel 37. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant. And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. And I will be their God. They will be my people. And all the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel. My sanctuary is in their midst forever. What was impossible through the old Mosaic covenant which was only given the point out a need of a better covenant, a better sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the one that could actually take away and deal with sin forever, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this new covenant was instituted by the death of Christ. And it makes sense right now, in light of all this, to remember that. That's why we're here. That's why we're brought together as a family. That's what we'll share one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This new covenant of Christ. The new covenant's primary provision is the forgiveness of sins by the death of the Messiah Jesus. Which then provides us with practical holiness in the person of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. My friends, we should not run back to Sinai. Becoming a more moral nation will not solve our problems. Eternity and judgment still waits. Our task is to be a new covenant people that is focused on bringing sinners to the Savior one at a time. 